Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast, where we are in a series called Questions, God, Faith, Life, and the Struggle of Being Human. Today's question is, what do we do with the angry God of the Old Testament? To start off, we have a question for you. What is one Bible story that makes you cringe? Enjoy. Labor Day weekend, we took the boys, this is pre-Bella, our daughter wasn't born yet, to Yosemite with a bunch of friends. And when we went there, one of the hikes that we did was up to uh, the Misty Falls. And the boys did a really good job at the time. Bryce was 16 months and Caden had just turned three. And they made that mile and a half walk by themselves up and down. So like, sweet, they're going to have a great nap time once we get back to the campsite. But when we're in that bus that kind of goes around Yosemite, you know, that takes you each of the parking spots, I noticed that Bryce started to act a little bit funny. And so I'm watching him and I'm like, something is off here. And then I see the vomit coming up, but he's strapped into one of those carriers. So I'm trying to unbuckle as fast as I can. And he starts poltergeist vomiting through this bus. So the stop happens right there. So people are getting off the bus who had not been paying attention to the reality that he was vomiting. And people were now getting into the splash zone as Bryce is puking on them, right? So we exit the bus as quickly as possible. I've got vomit all over me. There's people who I do not know. I'm like, sorry, I don't know what to tell you right now. My friends chuck our stuff to us um, outside the bus. And I'm like, whew. I don't know what that was. So we get him back into the car and we're like, oh, I think he's better now. But now when we're in the car, he starts vomiting in the car. So I'm thinking, did he eat something wrong? Was it uh, some type of like sun poisoning or whatever? Does he not have enough water? Is it dehydration? And we can't get to him in the back of the car. We have about five miles to our campsite. And when we get out, his whole car seat basin is now filled with his vomit. Some of you are really excited about the story. It's only going to get worse. So. Now we're back at the campsite and we're like, oh, okay, now he's doing better. But over the next hour, we're trying to get water and food in him and he can't keep anything down at the moment. So like, well, what do we do? We have to go to an emergency room because they can't even take care of him in the valley. We have to go to a hospital, which is now like 70 minutes away. So we pack up our stuff. There's 40 people who we're camping with. I'm like, we just got to go. We can't leave it. We didn't have time to pack anything up. Let's just get in the car and let's go to the emergency room. And then we get there and it's a horrible night, right? We have a 16 month old who's been puking all day. He can't keep any water down. They have to give him IVs because they have to get fluids in him. Caden is now broken down at this point. So we have to make the decision 
decision to split up. So I go get a hotel room with Caden because he needs sleep now because he's completely exhausted. Carissa is in, a ho is in the hospital holding Bryce all night while he gets fluids. And the next morning comes around and we think, oh, it's all over. I think it's better. So we're like, well, what's our choices? We can drive back up to the campsite because we still have to get all of our stuff but it's gonna be a 90 minute, two hour process. And then we still have to drive back to LA six hours from here. So let's go back up, let's kind of see where we're at. We go there, the boys seem to be fine. So we're like, you know what? Let's stay the night, I think we're gonna be okay. We had a wonderful day, we went and played in the meadows, the kids were all back on track, Bryce seemed to be doing well. We put them down to sleep that night, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the night, cause I'm out in the fire, I hear Carissa yelling at me, Corey, get back to the tent! And now Caden is puking everywhere. And I'm like, oh no, are you kidding me? I do not want to drive back to that hospital. So we're in the tent, but Caden's just old enough and has enough verbal skills that I can kind of talk him through it of here's what you need to do. You need to like throw up in the bucket and you know, we have to like work everything out. You have to eat this food. But as the night goes on, he kept throwing up like every hour on the hour to the point where we had no more blankets left and it's 45 degrees outside. So I've already turned my sleeping bag inside out and now I'm sleeping with his vomit and him holding him. Cause I'm like, we got four more hours until the sun comes up. What other choice do we have? And I think that's kind of how it is sometimes when we read the Bible. We have to take the good stuff with the bad stuff. <laughs> right? We have this thing that we love and that we want to take care of and that we're really proud of it and that we would do anything for. But sometimes there's bad things that come with it and we're like, well, I guess I'll drive it to the hospital and deal with the vomit and just kind of gloss over those parts because the rest of the time, like you're my kid and I love you, right? Um, so we'll deal with the bad stuff because the good stuff is there as well. But I think sometimes we do that because we just haven't been taught to read the Bible very well. Uh, we see sometimes things as the bad stuff and we don't even understand the context of where it comes from. So the question today was, what do we do with the angry God of the Old Testament? And really a question I have is, what do you do with a violent God of the entire Bible? And maybe that's not even the question. Maybe there's a larger trajectory of where scripture's going and we don't see it because we just don't have eyes to see in our current context as the most powerful people that planet Earth has ever seen. So let's read the Bible a little bit better. Here's how you do it. First, you need to understand that every passage in the Bible was written in a very specific context at a very specific time. So when that passage talks about God in that passage, it is simply reflecting the context and the culture of that time. So the Israelites, when they're talking about God, are talking about Yahweh in a very familiar way as the other nations are around them and how they're talking about their gods. It's not much more complex than that. What's hard for our ears and our eyes thousands of years later is the thing is as it's evolved and it's grown and the picture's gotten a lot bigger. So we don't see that context because we don't live in that world anymore. And then what happens in a lot of those narratives where it feels like, oh, I thought here we were taking two steps forward in the Bible, and then all of a sudden we got to Judges. What do I do with that, right? Or all of a sudden we got to Joshua. What do I do with that? Or even sometimes all of a sudden we got to Jesus being crucified. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why did that need to happen are the questions that I get sometimes. What do we do with that? 
beyond the theology and the frameworks that we've already been given. But if we go to the context for each of these stories, we begin to say, oh, that's what's going on here. That's just what the culture was doing around them. And that's how they were understanding God. And then they began to offer counter narratives to the narratives that were already present around them. So what happens a lot in the Old Testament is you see tribalism take place. You see the fact that Israel is a tribe, just like thousands of other tribes that are in that world at that time, and they have their very specific God. And in the ancient world, you tell narratives and myths and stories that defend your very specific God. And if all of the other gods around you are violent, how do you think that you talk about your God sometimes? In a violent manner. Yet in the midst of those violent stories are these little passages that say, oh, that's not really who this God is. The authors are trying to tell us something bigger, something a little bit more subversive, something a little bit more counter to what's going on in the cultures and the narratives around them. Let me give you an example of this in our current context. It is no surprise to me that Donald J. Trump was elected to president of the United States of America. Why? And it's no surprise to me that evangelicals voted for Donald Trump by more than any other president ever. Why? Because something has been going on in Protestant Christianity for a long time, which is there's a fear-based gospel that has infiltrated our narrative. And the most powerful narrative that keeps a cohesive tribe together is what? Fear. So when you talk about defense, when you talk about security, when you talk about how bad things are, what do people do? They rally around that reality because it makes them feel safer that you may deal with that fear. And then what happens is we begin to see our God based on the reality of where our culture is and vice versa. And so it's no surprise to me that there's already a fear-based view of who God is and what God is doing. And of course, that ideologically plays out into who people are voting for, primarily people of faith and why they're voting in a particular way. And that narrative that's happening currently in our reality was a narrative that was taking place throughout all of the narratives that were being written down in the scriptures. So that's a little bit of theory. Let's take that and put it into a little bit of practice as we look at three very specific scriptures in the Bible. So we're gonna talk about creation. We're gonna talk about covenant. And then we're gonna talk about the cross. Very nice that that worked out with three C's for me today. I know, pastoral of me. So here's what we're gonna do, the creation story. The creation story in Genesis 1 is very similar to a creation story from the Babylonian uh, tribe. The Babylonians had this creation story called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, what happens was there was this God named Tiamat, and Tiamat was the God who was the God of the ocean waters. And in Tiamat's body were other demigods. One of those demigods was Marduk, who was the God of wind and tornadoes. And inside Tiamat, in this God of the oceans, were other demigods, including Marduk, who were often fighting and quarreling. And Tiamat was annoyed at the demigods that were inside of her. So what happens one day is that Marduk rallies the other demigods and says, we don't need Tiamat anymore. Let's go ahead and kill her so that we can now become the head gods of the gods, right? So what happens is that the, all of the other gods get behind Marduk and Marduk kills Tiamat, cuts her body in half. Again, she's the ocean waters 
that are now separated in half. This is sounding familiar. And on one side is dry land, and on the other side is the skies. And then what Marduk does is he says to all of the other gods who didn't rally behind me in our revolution, you will now be punished. But then over time, these other gods begin to favor Marduk. So Marduk says, well, now I need some other servants. And Marduk creates human beings. And human beings are now here to serve the gods. Well, somewhere in the 19th century, we discovered the manuscripts of the Enuma Elish on clay tablets, and we began to say to ourselves, this is really fascinating because Genesis 1 sounds a lot like the Enuma Elish, or does the Enuma Elish sound a lot like Genesis 1? But what we found out is that the Enuma Elish is centuries older than Genesis 1, so what do we do with that reality? Then you say, ah, there's a context going on here. This thing was never meant to explain the Big Bang Theory. Who would have thought, right? So what happens in Genesis 1 is we realize, oh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is like the Gospels for the Hebrew Bible. These were written down for the first time in Babylon when Israel is in captivity under another superpower. So what happens here is something revolutionary in the history of the world. When the other tribes would fight in the history of the world and you beat up a tribe without fail, as in there's no other instances of this in world history except with the Israelites, your God now lost and the new God takes over. That's just how it works, right? Clearly your God is more powerful than their God. But the Israelites didn't do that they became more monotheistic and more faithful to Yahweh than they ever did before when they were in captivity. And some things started to happen. One of those things is they begin to write down the scriptures. So now you're an Israelite sitting in captivity with the most powerful superpower that the world has ever seen. And you're telling the creation story of the world with your God, even though your God kind of just got defeated by the gods of Marduk and the Babylonians. What do you do now? You tell a counter narrative. And in this counter narrative, what happens in Genesis 1 is Yahweh begins to create. But Yahweh does something very different than Tiamat and Marduk and all of the other gods of the other nations. Yahweh does not use violence. Yahweh didn't split anybody in half. Yahweh didn't kill anybody. This God simply speaks and through speaking creates life. This God starts to say that creation and everything else around you is good. The Hebrew word there is tov. And if you were reading Genesis 1 and you knew Hebrew, every time that you see that check, which is the T there in tov, that's a very unusual letter, as in the most unusual letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like seeing X. So when you saw that in the Hebrew, you'd be like, oh, there's the tov again. And there's like this drumbeat of tov, tov. Tove, that's underlying the Genesis 1 story. Now this, you're cueing into the beauty of this poem and this reality. And as you're listening to it, you're saying, oh, this is a different narrative than the gods of all of the other nations. In fact, this very specific narrative is a counter narrative to the Babylonian creation story. Now that is revolutionary. So if all of the other gods around you are violent, 
When everyone else requires blood sacrifice and your God starts to ask for something different, you start to say, there's a different trajectory for what it means to be human. And then at the end of all of the toves of the Old Testament, there's a very tove that takes place. And it says this, that this God made male and female in God's image. By the way, that's 3,000 years ahead of its time. 3,000 years. We just barely got to a place in this country like 100 years ago when women could vote. Somewhere thousands of years back there, there's a creation story where this God comes out of the box. Like, first narrative, I want everybody to know this, that men and women, they're both made in my image. That's way ahead of the game. Somehow we missed that for a lot of years of church history, interestingly enough, right? And it's the very first story. From the very beginning, this thing was meant to be counter-narrative revolutionaries subverting the empires of the world. Our God does not kill. Our God is not violent. Our God is not using human beings to serve this God. Because have you ever thought about what a puny God that is? That this God creates everything, 13.8 billion years of life happening in our universe. And after God creates all of that and human beings are somehow around for like this final portion of time, this God is like, what I really need from you is to raise both hands on a Sunday, please. <laughs> what? You only came to Sunday two times this month. What? Do you see how small that narrative just got? When in the beginning of it, it was saying, no, this thing is counter-revolutionary and I made you as human beings to enjoy this good creation that I made for you. Because when you enjoy this, you'll just end up enjoying me anyway. And the more that you know that I enjoy you, the more that you'll enjoy me. But the story of creation from the Babylonians and a bad, violent story that we've been telling for thousands of years is God saying, first somehow love me. And once you say the magical word and the magic prayer, do the right baptism or go to the right church, then I too will love you. This story says, no, no, no. We start off in a very different place. All human beings are equal. It's not about violence. It's about a good God creating a good creation and that we get to partake in this beautiful world. That's all revolutionary. And if you didn't know what Genesis 1 was all about, that's a violent story of all of the other creation stories of the world. And this one is countering that in a very specific way for a very specific reason. Some of you know Brian Tarada in this room. Brian Tarada started something called Be Free Brian is one of those guys that if you're around him for like mm, three and a half seconds, you're like, this human being exudes joy, right? There's like a positive energy coming from his bones and he can't even prevent that. Brian is like a Genesis 1 kind of guy for me. He is like tove, tove. Everything he does, he's telling this more positive narrative that is counter to the fear-based narratives of the world. His narrative is so wonderful that he's a gay man who came out at a conservative evangelical college and said, yeah, but God was so good and gracious to me there. I want to start this network called Be Free so that when other people come out, they too will have the same positive, loving, and gracious experience that I had. Huh? Isn't that amazing? And that's a counter-narrative that's being told to the world through somebody's life. It says that for so many coming out Genesis narratives of people coming out, it's been based around the world being torn in two and lives being separated and pain and hurt and violence. But Brian's story is, no, no, no. This thing can be good 
This thing is normal. This thing is healthy. I'm going to experience the best humanity ever. And we need more narratives like that. And we get more narratives like that when we participate in the counter-narrative of what's going on in the scriptures. So I ask you these questions from Genesis 1. Do you need to hear today that you're good? Has the narrative that's been going on in your life that you're not? You don't add up. You don't measure up. It's because you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this, but you're not that. And do you just need to hear simply that, oh no, from the very beginning, the story of these scriptures, the story of this God has always been that you're good, that you're intrinsically valuable, that you are made in the image of this good God. This good God made everything and already enjoys you and hopes that you can enjoy back. Do you know that you have the divine spark that within you is already God? You can go on a lot of searches externally for it, but the secret of the scripture is internally the thing was already there. When Jesus pronounces his kingdom and the Pharisees come and say, where is this kingdom of yours as they're looking around? Jesus says, it was already within your heart. You're looking the wrong way. Do you hear that you have an interesting life? You, you're compelling. Some people need to hear that. You're compelling. I have this conversation with my wife sometimes who spends a lot of time taking care of our three children at home while I get to like gallivant the world and do like crazy interesting things. And what I realize is no, 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 like the work that you're doing is compelling. The effort that you're putting in at home is valuable. You don't get to have 20 different conversations a day, you have three conversations every day most days. And you are telling a counter narrative to the world that's incredibly valuable. And maybe some of the narratives that you're in, you need to hear something else. The work that you're doing, who you are, matters. That you are endlessly fascinating. Do you need to simply hear the idea that God is on your side? That's a counter-narrative that we can tell to the world. So that's creation. Let's talk about one of the most famous violent stories of the Bible, covenant. Listen to Genesis 12, 18, 18, that's what it is. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. All sounds good so far. Go and sacrifice him. You should press pause here, by the way. Not normal to our context. We should ask some serious questions as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Okay, this doesn't add up with Genesis 1, you might say. Loving God creates all of humanity. We're all made in God's image. You want me to sacrifice my only son? Context needed, you may ask. Yeah, lots of it. First of all, there's Abraham and Sarah who are really old. And in a world where you're really old and don't get to have lots of kids, you are looked at as a pariah for the next generation. You have one purpose in Hebrew thinking and in most Semitic thinking, that is to pass on children to the next generation. How do you keep yourself with an eternal life? You keep having more kids. In their blood is your blood and their blood and their blood, and that's what everlasting life looks like in most ancient cultures. So when you've been infertile your entire life and you get to have a kid, and now this God is asking you to give your son up for sacrifice, you should kind of be a little frustrated at the moment. And then there's always like the weirdos who are like, well, what God is really trying to do here is to see if you're really faithful. That's a weird God. You can say that, right? But here's what all of the other gods were doing in all of the other cultures. You always needed to know where you stood with the gods because the gods 
from the creation stories that you lived into were always angry with you. So you constantly lived in fear. And when you constantly live in fear, you are, have a lot of anxiety about what's happening in the heavens. This doesn't sound like any religious group in our world today, right? So then what happens is you have to keep upping the sacrifices. You start with some vegetables, you work your way to some goats. What eventually do these gods want from you? Human sacrifice. And by the way, this is true of all cultures of the world in the ancient world, right? The Mayans and the Aztecs, even after like the Mesopotamian world had long moved away from human sacrifice, what were they doing? Not just one human now, we need hundreds or thousands to please the gods who were angry. So a long time ago, this story comes along and says, oh, I want to sacrifice your son. And most of the readers in that context where human beings were sacrificed didn't blink because this is the world that they understood. If you don't blink in 2017, that's a little off, right? You should ask some questions here. So go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Pause. Right? What does it say? We. There's already something else going on here. It says we for a reason. Abraham believes something else about this God, maybe even if everyone else in the culture didn't believe that reality. And it's that we are coming back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, we have the fire and the wood, but the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Isaac's a clever fellow. He's asking some questions here too about where they're going and what they're doing. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. By the way, I've heard this sermon preached a bunch of times and most of the time, actually all of the times, I don't ever hear people call it the obvious response. We always make some convoluted theological response about why it's okay that God asked to kill Isaac and why Abraham should be okay with that. And somehow that that shows faithfulness in the world. That's just weird. I don't care who you are. That's not what, even what the story says. Every step of the way, Abraham keeps saying, uh, God's gonna provide, God's gonna provide, God's gonna provide. And yet somehow we get our kicks off by a fear-based God that's really violent. Why? because we live in a fear-paced culture that's really violent. And so we have a hard time seeing what the Bible's saying right in front of us because we've been taught to look through powerful eyes that deal with violence every single day to keep our peace happy. Am I right? We live in a world where we sacrifice sons and daughters so that we can be at peace. That's not real peace, my friends. And the Bible is constantly fighting against that kind of violence. So, they both walked on together, and when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Abraham's going to go through with it. And at the moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, 
Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. And again, if you've been around New Abbey before, the word fear is not the word for scared. The word fear in the Hebrew is a word for awe and mystery. We don't translate that well in English for a lot of reasons. But if you lived with a Hebrew mindset, this is now I know that the God story is bigger for you than ever. And now the word fear has a lot more play here, right? Now I know that, that what we're going to do here is bigger than all of the other narratives of the other gods around us. And so this thing's going to get bigger than the other narratives that you're participating in him. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. By the way, what do you want to do with this language? Here's what you do with this language. This God speaks to Abraham in the same way that all of the other gods would speak in that culture. That's really important for you to understand. God never speaks in a way in the Bible or in any of our lives that is not congruent with how you understand. Because that would be really tough to work with, right? So all of the other gods of the other cultures are asking for sacrifice. God speaks to Abraham in such a way, but does something different than who the other gods are. That's how the counter-narrative works. God speaks in a language that you get because you're you and you grow up in a very specific time and place in history. But then God says, oh, but there's a bigger way and a bigger narrative. Now let's go there. None of us have to be confined by the bubbles or the glasses that we grew up in. That's what makes the God and Yahweh and Jesus story so much more compelling. So then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. God provided. He took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me, I have not withheld even your son, your only son. I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. In all of this passage, there is language of the culture of this day. And then there's also these moments that pull us forward thousands of years ahead of its time. Just like Genesis 1. There's language of the day of the other creation narratives around them. And then there's moments like man and woman are created in my image that pull us way forward, way ahead of its time. In this passage, there's language that's familiar to human sacrifice that's going on in the cultures around them. And then there's something that happens in the middle of tribalism, right? A tribal world with tribal gods is this God pulls people way forward and says, oh, but the thing that I want to do through you is bless all nations. That got pretty universal pretty fast, pretty early on in the scriptures. That starts to match up with things like Colossians 1, which says that Jesus came to reconcile all of creation, not just the Christians who say the magic words, right? That's a very big narrative shift that is always there in the scriptures, but it's always embedded upon contextual pieces of social contracts that are going on in those cultures. And you have to take one with the other. If you're gonna love your kids, you have to deal with vomit sometimes, right? They both happen simultaneously in the same little human being. So I wanna ask some other questions for you. Do you need to hear that God's not asking that of you? Some of you have that thing where you think like, God's asking me of this, and I don't know if I can do that. What if this God's not asking that of you? 
What if this thing that you're putting on yourself is fear-based and that's not what this God is doing? Because this God's not trying to get you to do the impossible. This God's not toying with you. Do what you want with the next one. This God's not, you know, effing with you. By the way, some of you feel that way. I have conversations every week where some of you feel that way, that this God is messing with you. Am I doing this right? How come I'm so faithful or how come this is going on? We live in this desperate world of cause and effect where we're still like ancient people thousands of years ago, sacrificing whatever we can, doing the quiet time at the right time because we're trying to please the God. And this God is constantly saying in the scriptures, stop, I already enjoy you. I already love you. And I'm trying to pull you ahead to a better reality. And what if this God's saying, I'm actually on your side and I want to bless you. And if I can bless you, then I can bless the entire world. Like we say in here all the time from the great prophet Brene Brown of our generation, come on. If your, heal, your healing is directly dependent upon the healing of the world, and the healing of the world is directly dependent upon your healing. They don't come without each other. And so if God's going to bless you, then God wants to bless the entire world. Do you need to simply hear again that God is on your side? And finally, the cross. The cross narrative goes a lot like this. It's about a ton of violence. It's about a giant beating. And we get really comfortable with that story. And we've gotten really comfortable with that story in the last 500 years, particularly in Protestant theology, particularly in the West. Again, that makes no surprise to me that the most violent cultures that the world have ever seen use the most violent images of what God's doing. And we describe and create and craft an atonement theology around that reality. Do you know that for the first thousand years of the church, Atonement theology was not the predominant theology of the church. The predominant theology of the church was that you were made in God's image, that the good news of Jesus is that you are good exactly where you are, that the Sermon on the Mount starts off with what? Blessed are you because you're jacked up, if you read the rest of the blessings, right? This proclamation of good news says, you're a human being, none of us have it all figured out, and blessed are you there, and that's already where God meets you. As time went on, as the church became more powerful, atonement theology became a lot more prominent in the history of the church. You do not have to take my word on that, but I'll give you like 17 history books to read if you'd like to. So then what happens in the last 500 years, particularly as the Protestant white church becomes the most powerful colonial superpowers of the world, a lot of violence permeates the way that we interpret what God's doing. So I'm guessing some of you, if you've been in the church for a while, heard the same sermon I heard when I was a kid. Jesus was beat more than any human being ever. And we go to a lot of depth about how badly he was beat and the cattails and what was going on and how bruised and bloody he is. Like You need to know he got the best whooping that could be given to any human being. I'm gonna break something down for you now. Jesus was beat like all of the other prisoners were beat in that time because the Romans did it the same way. Why? Because they want to inflict as much pain on you as possible without killing you. So Jesus didn't get much preferential treatment in the way that Jesus was beat. That's really important for you to know. Because if you don't know that, then you begin to create a narrative around how badly Jesus was beat. And that's the theology that you have instead of a broader view of what God's trying to do there. Jesus is trying to deal with the violence of the Roman Empire because God is always at work dealing with the violence and the impression of any empire, right? All empires, all of the superpowers, including the empires of sin and death, 
right? Jesus is at work against that oppression. And so Jesus gets beat according to how the Roman Empire killed people because it was the Roman Empire that was killing him. But a few things happened with Jesus that were very interesting. One is that Jesus didn't come as a Messiah should have come, and Jesus didn't use violence and oppression to deal with the Roman Empire. Why? Because when one empire takes over, it's just a matter of time because before another empire is more violent than you and more oppressive than you and more powerful than you. So Jesus stopped dealing with the violence of the external world and talked a lot about the kingdom that's happening internally within you for a reason, right? That's even why near Jesus's death, when Peter attacks the guards that are coming at Jesus, Jesus says, stop, if I wanted to, I would call down 10,000 angels right now and put an end to this thing, but I don't want to because that's not how this narrative plays out. I'm getting killed in a violent way by the violent empire, but this God, as you've seen from Genesis 1 through Genesis 18, through the rest of the Hebrew Bible all the way until now, does not work in those same violent kind of ways. This God is always offering a counter subversive revolutionary narrative out of the context of its day. So I will be killed how the Romans kill people, but then I'm going to do something different, right? A, I'm not going to use violence to deal with what's happening. And once all of the violence in the world is put upon me, once the empire kills me and the religious institution kills me and death kills me and sin kills me, then that's where I am putting an end to violence. And you notice that when Jesus is resurrected, he doesn't come with that army of 10,000 angels, right? Jesus comes with the wounds of that violence saying, let's put those scars to rest. Let's put that wounding to rest. Let's stop battering and bruising one another physically and emotionally and spiritually and economically and all of the other ways that we hurt each other all of the time. The cross is the ultimate narrative, not of you escaping sin, pain, death, and the wounds of this world. It's the ultimate story of Jesus saying, I'm going first so that you all will join me. Because when we adequately deal with our wounds and our pain and our hurt, then we won't become the oppressors too. It's when you try to avoid the pain and the hurt and the wounds that after a while, when you're no longer the oppressed, then you will become an oppressor because you haven't dealt with your stuff. But the Jesus narrative is go deal with it. Come to the cross with me. Allow the world to do what the world does and allow the gods of this world to do what the gods of this world do. And that's to be violent and oppressive. But we will always subvert that narrative. And when we subvert that narrative together, then we resurrect the world into a new way. Then creation is bursting forth in the way that it was always intended to. It's good and it's beautiful and it's to be enjoyed. And it's for every single human being which is why Jesus always hung out with the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor, which is why a woman was there who was the first to the resurrection narrative, right? Which is why these narratives are used constantly to subvert the power structures of individuals and the corporate power structures of the day. It's all there right in front of us. And there's endless scripture stories about this. This God was simply using the current narratives of the day and taking those narratives and subverting them into a way that says, what's the best story about reconciling, renewing, forgiving, grace, mercy, hope, new creation that I can tell? 
And Jesus is the ultimate way forward in that because Jesus is the first, so to speak, right? This is why God does this to God's self to take on violence and say, the violence goes no further. That's revolutionary. And then when you begin to read the Bible in that way, when you begin to open the scriptures in this way, you begin to see there's not a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's not a violent God secretly hiding here. There's a loving, gracious, merciful God that's constantly trying to get out of the violent God's shadows. There's a God that's telling a new narrative that's constantly trying to say, I no longer operate, I have never operated the ways that the, that the empires do. I operate in a new way that brings life. And so some final questions for us. Do you need to hear today that God wants to do something with the pain? With the wounds? With the hurt? With all the places that your soul is bruised? That God wants to restore you? That God wants to restore, reconcile, and renew the entire world? Do you need to hear that there's a way forward? That this is not the final word? That some of you are in places of life right now, you're like, I cannot endure this another month. I cannot endure this another year. And maybe you need a narrative that God is simply saying to you right now, there's going to be a way through. And there's resurrection on the other side, but there might be some wounds and some hurt and some pain in the midst of all of it. And through that, I have something new to tell to the world. At the end of the story, the end of your story, that it's not the final word, you need to hear that God is simply on your side. And so I want to close with a very personal story. I grew up in a household where I never knew where I stood with God. Uh, I always say I was fortunate enough to grow up in a very ambiguous view world of God. My dad was quasi-Catholic. My mom was like evangelical, fundamentalist, Christian, megachurch this. My aunts and uncles were God who knows what. Thanksgiving was a very fascinating conversation every year. And why that was really helpful for me is I heard a lot about God and everyone kept saying God as if they were all talking about the same thing. But my very young ears knew right away, you guys aren't saying the same thing at all. And you guys are all at war with each other about how you're talking about this God. And you keep telling me about this God, that this God is so loving and so caring and so good. Yet this God sounds really mean and really angry and really horrible. And this God, in fact, wants to destroy most of creation and most human beings. And you all seem to be very okay with it. This doesn't add up to me. And I, that was there as a six-year-old and as a 10-year-old and as someone who was in high school. And I remember getting to college and I, nothing added up to me, but yet that was the view of God that was deep within my bones. And I'll always remember Heather Bussey. She was my most liberal friend at the time and I would often make her cry in conversations because I was so certain about how most of the world was going to hell in a handbasket and that this God was very satisfied with that reality. And I was very certain that George W. Bush and the Iraq war and all that kind of stuff were the will of this God because this God was violent and we are protecting our American ideals. And of course, Jesus came down with the constitution in one hand, the Bible in the other, riding an American eagle. I knew this. <laughs> These are the things that were told to me. I was in the church services where the F-16s flew by on the screen as we sang hymnals to who, how great God was. I was deeply ingrained in this reality. And I remember one day Heather was crying so badly because I knew my Bible a lot better than her. And I knew all of the violent stories without any of the context. And I repeated a lot of garbage to her. I remember her just weeping in that room as I am just making the point about this violent God. But I always will thank Heather, and I've thanked her to this day, because thankfully she's still friends with my wife and us. Praise God for my wife. <laughs> and I told her this a few weeks ago, actually. I said, something we speak at New Abbey is the dissenting voice. 
that in the rabbinic tradition, you would always have a dissenting voice when you interpreted the scriptures. Because sometimes what would happen is you would come back hundreds of years later and read a passage and you would say, oh, it was the dissenting voice that was right the whole time. We couldn't see it with our eyes and with our ears in our current context. But that was the person that was correct the whole time. Heather Bussey was the dissenting voice in my life. She was the liberal whatever flower girl who I was so certain was going to hell. And yet she profoundly shaped me because she just stood for a God that was bigger than mine. And as the years went on, and as I understood more context, and as I explored more of the world, as I met more people who looked differently than me, the dissenting voice won out, and the violent, angry God went away. And as I read the scriptures now, they're bigger and more vibrant and filled with more mystery than they ever have before. And I appreciate so many of you because you're in the same place asking the same questions. And yet we all need dissenting voices. We all need a broader, more diverse uh, conversation to take place so that we have a bigger view of who God is. So I wanna close with these questions. You can find the same two, three, four people around you. What does it mean that God is for you? And how do you reflect that reality? Um, and what I mean by that is you don't have the violent God. What do you believe about a God that's actually for you and about you and that all of scripture and Jesus is leading to that reality instead of a God who needs more violence to satisfy who this God is? Somehow answer that. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.